Let's read Ephesians 4, and we'll wrap up with, with this text. I'm going to read 1 through 16, but I'm going to hang mostly there in verses 11 through 16. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray together. Lord God, we are grateful for the instruction we've received from your word, the challenge we received to search um, our own hearts, to consider our own sin, and Lord, then to take what we've learned from your word and help others. Lord, we pray that you'd be pleased with us now as we, we think about Ephesians chapter 4. May you do your work through your word as the Spirit applies it to our hearts as we seek to magnify Christ together. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been learning generally, hopefully if you've, if you've caught one thing from the conference, is it's not to be uh, afraid of the word, that word counseling. You know, we, we've joked about how that can, that can kind of lead people astray. We've been using various definitions. Dr. Carson said it's using God's word to help a fellow sinner and suffer follow Jesus by taking the next step toward becoming like Christ which brings, God's, which brings God glory and results in the counselee's joy. So it's coming alongside someone, helping them become like Christ, using the Word of God, and that glorifies God. And, and when we live life unto the glory of God, there's a joy associated with that. Not a giddy, necessarily giddy happiness where life is everything we, we, we dreamt it to be. No, there's still suffering, there's hardship, but there's deep-seated joy associated with living life unto the glory of God. So we heard Dr. Carson's definition over and over and over again, personal ministry, private ministry, ministry of the word, discipleship, all these different words to, to uh, define counseling. So keep that in mind as we, as we wrap up our conference. The way I tend to describe what is biblical counseling is not necessarily with a definition, but through an illustration of my, my oldest, who I'm glad he's not here because I can tell the story, but you know, his, his room had just gotten disastrous, right? And that's, that's on me too, right? Okay. But his room had just gotten beyond his ability. I couldn't just say, Brennan, go clean your room. I mean, it was just like he walks in and doesn't know where to start, so he doesn't start, and then it just, it just continues. So it, it had gotten beyond him to the point where he needed help, right? And so I go in, and I'm going to help. And this is the way I help. It drives Lizzie crazy. But I, I take a broom, and I put everything into the middle of the room, everything. I mean, I'm getting under the bed. I just sweep it all out. And we get this huge pile. It wasn't quite this tall, but you get this huge pile in the, in the middle of the room. And, I, and I, I know better than to just do it for him, right? So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to come alongside him, sweep everything out, get this pile together. And, and because I'm older, I know like, okay, there's a plan for how we can deal with this. Again, Brennan's looking at the pile like, I, I thanks, Dad. You know, it, it was under the bed. Now it's out in the open. 
You know, but, but, but when I can come, I'm come alongside and say, all right, you pick up all the dirty clothes in this pile. And then he does it, puts them in dirty clothes. And then the pile's smaller, right? Okay, now pick up all the trash in this pile. Picks up all the trash. Now it's getting uh, a little smaller. Pick up all the footballs and the basketballs. So it's, I can help him envision what needs to happen in order for this uh, room to become clean. And so what, what happens then, eventually the pile's gone. The room is, is now at a place where, Lord willing, he can, he can maintain it, right? He can sort of return back to normal life. And that's what biblical counseling is. It's trying to come alongside someone who needs that sort of help to say, all right, well, man, let's just get it all out in the open. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come alongside you and I'm going to help you come up with a, with a way and a plan to, to glorify God by working through these specific tasks, these specific issues. And so the, the, the idea behind my session is um, where does this sort of ministry best take place? Where does this sort of ministry best take place? So we, well, you heard Dr. Carson's definition. You've heard my illustration. Here's one more way to think about biblical counseling. Speaking the truth in love. Speaking the tr- truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. And so this, this afternoon, this evening, we're going to look at the church as the place where this sort of one another type of ministry, speaking the truth and love to one another, coming alongside one another, the church is a context in which change best takes place. Point number one is this. If, 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 I have notes. I'm not like Dr. Carson. I, I don't do PowerPoint. I'm, that dude, he does PowerPoint. But I did print out the notes for you. Point number one is this. God has given pastors to churches not to do all the ministry, but to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Look back there at verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. For what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. How long do we do that? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So the context of Ephesians 4, we we read a little bit of a a broader passage there. But Christ has descended in, in the incarnation, conquering sin and death, on our behalf, and he has ascended victorious. And when he ascended, he sort of put the principalities and the powers to shame that used to rule over us when we were in Adam. He he triumphed over them in Christ. And he has ascended in power to the right hand of the Father so that he might fill all things. That's what we read there in verse 10. So though God is omnipresent, Right? He is everywhere. Verse 10 is not a reference to that. He didn't ascend to the right hand of the Father so that Christ could be everywhere. Right? It's that He might fill all things. And here's what that is. To fill all things as it relates to the ascension of Christ is an affirmation that Christ pervades all things with His rule, with His authority. He directs all things to their appointed end. And so he, he, he demonstrates that through triumphing over those principalities and powers that used to dominate us. And now he's, he's demonstrating grace by giving gifts to men. And these gifts are highlighted in, verse, in chapter 4. And these gifts are unlike the other gift lists discussed in Scripture, right? You can... You think about Romans 12 or these other passages where they kind of walk through gift lists. These these gifts are specifically associated with the ministry of the Word. They're gifted men who handle the Word of God. So he zooms in on gifts that are associated with the ministry of the Word. Apostles and prophets, right? An apostle is a sent one. It reminds me of the the ambassador Dr. Carson was talking about all weekend. An apostle is the one sent with the message of Christ. Prophets are the ones who were given the word of God and were, were to share that word with others. In chapter 2, verse 20, the, the, 
the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So as, as the word came to these men and the word went forth, it, it, the church was established on the apostles and the prophets. Of course, Christ is the cornerstone. We're not going to highlight prophets and apostles above Christ. He's the cornerstone. They preached him, but the church is built on the foundation that they built, they established. Evangelists, too, they're associated with the ministry of the word. These are, these are preachers of the gospel. This, this would include missionaries who went forth and proclaimed Christ. And then we have shepherds and, and teachers, right? Some translate this pastor, teacher. Whether this is one group or two, uh, it's not the burden of my talk. But, but we would say all pastors are our teachers, right? One of the qualifications of being a pastor is equipped to teach. And so what all these titles have in common is that they, they are administrators of doctrine. They are administrators of the apostles' doctrine that were laid forth, given down to the church once for all. And so God has given, in our context, right, we would say apostles, prophets have, have passed. They were uh, for the establishment of the church. For our purposes, we're going to focus in on pastors and teachers why has God given pastor teachers to the church? Well, verse 12 tells us to equip the saints. To equip the saints. And to equip there is to make someone adequate for a given task. Right? That's what I need to do with Brennan in his room. I need to equip him. But to equip the saints for what? For the work of the ministry. Now, it's tempting when, when you read Ephesians 4, and I've seen commentaries do this, and I've, I've heard preachers say, say this, and they say, yeah, preachers exist to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, like getting coffee ready on Sunday morning, like running the nursery uh, during church on Sunday. Now, I love that. We need that done. That's service to others. That's giving of yourself to others. I, I appreciate that sort of ministry. But given the context of Ephesians 4, it seems like the work of ministry is specifically designed for us. And I say that because of the outcome. Equip the saints for the work of... Siri's talking to me. Uh, equip the saints... I'm not sure I understand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's darkened in her understanding. Futile in our thinking. All right. Pastor teachers given to the church for the work of the ministry. What's the result of this work that we're supposed to do? It's stability. It's maturity. It's growing up into Christ. Again, I love it when people show up to make coffee. But the end of this sort of ministry that Paul's talking about is maturity into Christ. And I think he defines the work of the ministry specifically for us. In verse 15, I think he defines it as speaking the truth in love. This is why we call biblical counseling, personal ministry, discipleship, whatever you want to call it, within reason, right? Whatever you want to call it, it's every member ministry. The reality is we need one another. We need one another. Even when I was working with teenagers, I would tell them, I need you to speak truth into my life, and you need me to speak truth. I have got mixed up there. Something into your life, whatever. You see that. The, the, the reason pastors are given to the church, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. What Paul does is he sort of uh, mixes, mixes metaphors a little bit. Building up of of the body. He kind of has an engineering picture with a biology picture here. Um, Lizzie is what you call a third culture kid, my wife. So when you grew up on the mission field, you, you don't feel like you have a culture. You know, you, you grew up in Africa, you grew up in the States, you don't necessarily feel at home in any particular culture. But one thing, when you grow up speaking a, a different language, but you know English, sometimes she mixes metaphors. And so one time, I don't know, I told an embarrassing story, and she goes, sell me under the bus, why don't you? <laughs> and so I'm like, Liz, sell you out or, or throw you under the bus. <laughs> Either way, I apologize. 
But that's sort of what Paul does here. He sort of mixes a couple metaphors here. The, the building up of the body. The, the, the point is clear, though. As the church, every member engages together in the sort of ministry that's going to build up the body into maturity. The body is edified. It matures as pastors equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. How long do we do that? What's, what's the finish line? When can, when can we elders say, okay, we, we've done our task. We can, we can rest. We can stop. Well, that answer is given to us in verse 13. Until we all attain, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So it does, in other words, it doesn't stop, right? Till we are glorified with Christ. So, so we labor towards this goal until we attain unity. First, Paul says, to, to our commitment to the truth of the gospel. That's to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. We, we strive after a unified understanding and commitment to the gospel and to the Son of God. We share that one faith that Paul talked about in chapter 4, verse 5. There's one faith. He's talking about this doctrine, the apostles' teaching that's been passed down to us. We are, so, so we're striving together to be unified under the faith. Orthodoxy, the, the apostles' doctrine passed down to the church in the form of Scripture. And so what you have in a church is you've got all these people that are at different stages in understanding the truth of God's Word. And we're laboring to, to, to speak the truth into one another so we all grow in our knowledge and understanding of the Word of God. And we do this in fellowship together. In fellowship together as a church, the church grasps to a greater degree all that was involved in the accomplishing of their salvation through Jesus Christ. We labor towards that. We labor towards unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. We labor until we all attain maturity. Paul says to mature manhood. Right? And a little tiny baby can't even hold its own head up, you know. Children are constantly falling, constantly finding ways to hurt themselves. And so Paul's contrasting what's true of a child, and we'll see that tossed about by every wind of doctrine in a minute. He's contrasting what's true of a child, what's true with a mature person, aiming at the stability of manhood. And so the church grows up in its understanding of the faith and the work of Christ and the gospel. We labor until we all attain maturity. And together, the body grows and it matures and it develops into an adult that is stable and steadfast. And we'll see in a minute, not blown around by every wind of doctrine. And we labor until we all attain Christ-likeness to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, Paul says. It's Christ-likeness. Christ is, is the measuring stick. He is the standard. We're aiming, Dr. Carson read in Colossians, we proclaim Christ that we may present every man mature in Him. That's what we're after. We aim for Christ to be formed in us, to become more and more like our Savior. And so this, as we've talked all week about counseling, this gives us a way to evaluate our counsel. When we speak the truth and love to one another, whether it's over coffee, whether it's a parent to a child, uh, a, a husband and wife speaking with one another, whether it's in potluck or whether it's in an office setting. Are we, are we laboring for Christ to be formed in us? Are we striving after Christ-likeness? Is this the end for which we are pursuing? So if people, you know, we can't control people. Right? But if people are heeding our counsel and they're listening to what we're saying and they're doing what we say and we're not seeing Christ-likeness formed in them, we need to reevaluate what we're doing. Or to put it in the language, to borrow Paul's language from Colossians, if people, I opened the conference with this, if people aren't learning to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, 
fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. If that's not what we're striving after, and if people are hearing us and listening to us and we're not seeing that formed in them, we must evaluate our counsel. And again, we do this as a, as a team. We do this together. My, uh, you know, the church from, the people from Southern Hills will recognize this illustration, but, you know, we were probably 2020, I don't know, hiking in the, hiking in the hills. And my boys, I got three boys, and we're, we're coming down from Cathedral Spire, Spires Trail, and they say, let's race back to the car, but it's, it's sort of a team race, right? It's the boys versus me and Lizzie. And I am competitive, but I know I can beat my boys. I'm not going to get competitive about that, right? So Lizzie takes off, right? The boys take off. And Lizzie actually beats all the boys to the car because, again, she's, she's pretty competitive. And... I'm like, I'm not doing that. I just got over COVID. I'm tired. I'm at elevation, right? So I stroll up, and guess what? It was team race. So my team lost, even though my teammate made it back there first. The boys won because they got everyone across the finish line first. And, and the, this is what I'm saying. The Christian life, together, it's the church. It's a race. We're running together. And we haven't won if we've left our brother and sister back here stumbling, struggling, entangled in sin, given over to a trespass, and we say, oh, I'm running pretty well. We have not won. Right? We turn around and we go grab that person. We say, listen, we haven't finished the race till we've all crossed the finish line. So you're running with me. You're running with me. Right? We may need admonishment. They may need encouragement. They may need us to pick them up and carry them but we're doing this together, right? We're in this together. And so Paul has laid out for us the, the positive affirmations of this ministry of the Word. And then he sort of turns and he looks at it from, from the opposite angle. So he, he says, this is, what, this is what we're after, maturity, Christ-likeness, unity of the faith. Keep doing that. So that, what? Now's the negative side. We may no longer be children. We may no longer be children. If we're mature in Christ, we're no longer children. Right? Immaturity, instability, increasingly left behind. Right? We said earlier, children are unstable. Doesn't take much for them to, to, to fall over. They're immature. And so what Paul does is... is he uses the image of, of a rudderless boat that's just sort of like at the mercy of the waves. Tossed here, tossed there, whatever's cool. Culture's going this way. Oh, okay, well, now culture's going back this way. Like a small boat in the middle of a storm that's lost its power, just thrown everywhere by the wind, by the waves, carried whatever way the wind takes them. We had one lady... At Southern Hills, she came to Christ, and she said, you know, and, and she didn't come from a Bible-preaching church, so I'm not trying to undermine, like, we're for Bible-preaching churches, we pray for other churches, but she said, you know, the church I came from, they, were, they just went wherever the wind blew them, and I said, you don't realize this, but you just basically quoted Ephesians 4. They're easily deceived by false teaching. It sounds good appeals to the passions of the flesh, appeals to the appetites, but ultimately, as Paul says in Colossians 2, it's of, of no value in abstaining from the passions of the flesh. So God has given pastors to churches not to do all the ministry, but to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And I, I've already sort of re revealed my cards a bit and given you my point number two ahead of time. And, and so you won't be surprised here. But point number two is this. The work of the ministry is every member ministry and defined as speaking the truth in love. Look there in verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 
So if, if we've been defining biblical counseling as, as winsomely taking the Scripture and helping others follow Christ, then that's, that's speaking the truth in love. That's every member of ministry. Paul says it's imperative that every member is active in this sort of ministry. We're talking about a task that everyone who claims the name of Christ should seek to engage in at some level. Now, again, it doesn't mean, I asked Dr. Carson, what, what happens when we get in over our heads? It doesn't mean you have all the answers in and of yourself. That's not what biblical counseling means. It does mean you come alongside people, and you're trying to help them see Christ. And if you point them to Christ, you won't hurt them. So as we think about this sort of ministry, we might be helped by distingu- distinguishing kind of three aspects of the ministry of the Word that are active in a local church. Well, the one we've been talking about is personal ministry. This is, again, taking, well, well, sorry, interpersonal ministry is biblical counseling. Let me start with personal ministry. This is the self-counsel stuff that Dr. Carson just rammed us over with, right? This is where all good counseling begins. This is taking God's Word, meditating on it, memorizing it, applying it to our own lives. This is, this is self-counsel. This is hiding the Word of God deep in your own heart so that when someone cuts you off on the road, you're responding God-pleasing instead of yelling. There's also the public ministry of the Word. This is the, the public proclamation of the Word. This is preaching and teaching. Nothing we've said this weekend is meant to undermine the importance of preaching the Bible. Right? We're we're simply arguing that preaching is meant to equip the saints to speak the truth and love to one another. Right? These two ministries, they go hand in hand. Okay, and then there's a private ministry of the Word, which is what we've been talking about. If, If the public ministry of the Word is obedience to Paul's command to preach the Word and to Timothy, the private ministry of the word is our obedience to Paul's words in, in Galatians chapter 6 to restore the one who has been overtaken in a trespass and a fault and to restore him in a spirit of gentleness and to bear one another's burdens. The hard thing, the hard thing about counseling is this sort of this sort of interpersonal, this private ministry, it gets messy. Right? I manuscript my sermons. I've got every word written out. I may not say every word that's on there, but I sort of know what's going to happen when I get up to preach. Unless something, you know, when I candidated, actually the fire alarm went off and then my mic died. So Jeff comes down to put this, but all I know is there's an elder coming down the front aisle while I'm trying to candidate here. I thought I was getting the shepherd's hook like... I'm in Psalm 23. I was like, it couldn't be that bad. (laughs) But this interpersonal ministry, it's messy because relationships are messy and ministry's messy. Where where public ministry of the Word, I typically am going to start with a text, I'm going to explain the text, and I'm going to drive at application. I'm going to try to tease it out towards the end of the sermon, and I'm going to try to end with the gospel. The private ministry of the Word sort of works in reverse, and you're kind of hearing what the problem is, and now you're trying to work backwards to a text and figure out, how can I help this dear brother or this dear sister? We move from life to the text. When in preaching, I'm moving from the text to life. And so interpersonal ministry, it's, it is difficult. It is hard. That's why I asked Dr. Carson, tell us where you messed up. Because sometimes we hear Dr. Carson and we think, oh, he must be perfect. And I could never be perfect. And so I wanted us to hear from him, like, remind us that this is, this is hard and it's messy. And it's not a cookie cutter. That's what we want, right? Do step one, step two, step three, and you come out with a perfect counselee. That's just not how people work. And it's not how ministry works. You know, for any pastors, I know it's Saturday evening and some of the pastors had to go, but the private, and Dr. Carson may have said this, the private ministry of the Word is simply the opportunity for us to practice one-on-one what we proclaim publicly from the pulpit every week. 
Right? How many how many pastors with with conviction preach from the pulpit that the word of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, adequate for every good work, and the word of God has answers, and the word of God can speak to you in your broken marriage, and it can it, it can speak to you in your your enslavement to pornography. And then somebody comes, they say, My marriage is on the rocks, so they say, I'm addicted to pornography, and they say, Oh well. We'll have to call in the professionals here. I know a guy who can help you, and it's only going to cost you 150 bucks an hour. I exaggerate a little bit to make a point. But there's often the case where what we proclaim publicly does not match the way we actually minister privately. Though most members will not engage in the public ministry of the word, then all, I would say, are called to engage in the personal and private ministry of the word. What else does Paul say here? Look back at verse 14. What is it that tosses everyone about? Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, by deceitful schemes. What's our message? Public or interpersonal, instead of human cunning, instead of manipulation, instead of craftiness, instead of trickery, the church is not tossed about, but found speaking the truth and love to one another. Not speaking deceitful schemes, not speaking cunning, but speaking the truth and love. And so Paul says then, truth is the content of our message. Truth is the content of our message. I liked what Dr. Carson said early in the week, and he said the Bible's not a filter, it's a standard. And I think that's where we get so mixed up, like I'll just sort of put the sand through the filter and and see what sticks. Well, the Bible's more than just a filter. It's the standard by which we must counsel. God has revealed His power and His wisdom in a multitude of ways. He's revealed it in creation. He has revealed Himself in Christ. But what has He given us to to help us interpret creation and to know 2,000 years later who was Christ and what what was He like and what did He do? And what's He trying to do in me now? He's given us the Word of God. He's given us the Word of God. Psalm 19, 7 through 11. You might turn there quickly. Obviously, Psalm 19 begins with talking about the glory of God in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. Simple way for parents to remind their kids of of God's glory. Memorize Psalm 19.1 and quote it when the sun sets. Starts with creation, but by by verse 7, he's talking about special revelation. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Notice what the Bible is. Notice how it's it's talked about there in Psalm 19. The nouns in the text. The law of the Lord. The testimony of the Lord. The precepts of the Lord. The commandment of the Lord. The rules of the Lord. With precision and authority, God has delivered to us His very Word. And it reveals to us His will. Notice the way it's, it's described there. God's Word is reliable. God's Word is trustworthy. God's Word is dependable. It is capital T true. Right? It, is, it, is a, it is a different standard of truth. 
and it stands in stark contradiction to the unreliable and the questionable word of man. We saw that from Genesis. And notice what, what it does then. It revives the soul by imparting truth and wisdom that comes down from God above. It enlightens and rejoices the heart as people who abide in the word, live by it and learn it and walk in accordance with the will of God. One commentator, Derek Kidner, said this, Together, these terms show the practical purpose of revelation, to bring God's will to bear on the hearer and evoke intelligent reverence, well-founded trust, detailed obedience. To bring God's will to bear on the hearer and evoke reverence, trust, and detailed obedience. Consider how different that is from some of the things that Dr. Carson contrasted biblical counseling with, some of these uh, secular ideas. This is from the Harvard Guide to Psychiatry. It says, The therapist will not impose or otherwise induce his personal values on the patient. The therapist will not impose or otherwise induce his personal values on the patient. Why? Why would he not do that or she not do that? Well, the article goes on to say, there is the assumption that in every human being is a core selfhood, that if allowed free and unconflicted expression would provide the basis for creative, adaptive, productive living. Right? So I can't tell you what, you what you should do. I can't tell you what to think because actually inside of you, there's this self that if I just sort of get out of the way and let that self run free in, in unconflicted expression, you will be productive. Well, well here's what we've, if we've learned anything this week, we've learned this. In biblical counseling, we don't want the free, unconflicted expression of self. And we don't simply aim at productive living. We're not aiming at productivity. We don't believe in a valueless society where we are all free to determine what is right and wrong for ourselves. Because the Lord has passed down to us His standard. And the reality is, the one who created us presses upon us, not our own self-expression, but he has pressed his values upon us by his own sovereign will and giving it to us in his word. So in biblical counseling, we're, we're wanting the word of God. We're wanting God to do his work through the word of God, through the Holy Spirit of conforming people to the image of Christ. What, we, what we're aiming at and hoping for and praying, praying for, we can't produce this, but what we're aiming at is that inner self to, to, to not freely express itself, but to submit itself to the, the sovereign hand of Christ. So truth is the content. Truth is the content. It's what the body speaks back and forth to one another. The word goes forth in the public ministry of the word, and then it sort of bounces around in the fellowship of, of the body, and we're encouraging one another. We're speaking the truth, but, but not just speaking the truth. We're speaking the truth in love. Truth is the content Love is the sphere in which this content is delivered. Okay, so you speak the truth in love. Love is a sphere that, that, that this content gets delivered. A friend of mine says, truth without love is like surgery without anesthesia. You know, Dan retired. Hey, Dan. <laughs> I guess Dr. Carson caught his flight. Uh, Dan's back. But Dan retired, and I went to the dentist. Uh, first time without him. And the lady, I actually had a caveat, only one in my family. Um, but the lady says, I'm just going to give you a little anesthetic because it's not that bad a cavity. I'm like, okay, that's cool. So I go to a different room. I'm sitting there. She's drilling, drilling, drilling. And she goes, ooh, this one's deeper than I thought. And I'm like, time out, because she just said. <laughs> right? You don't want dental work without the anesthesia. The love is the anesthesia that makes that hard word that sometimes need to be, need to be said. It's delivered in love. And this, this love is formed and developed as we recognize that, that we love one another because God has chosen to love us. 
God has, in Ephesians 2, God has taken Jew and Gentile and he's broken down the barrier of the dividing wall. He's created in Christ this one new entity. We call it the church. Paul calls it one new man there, this, this body. And we're called as those who, are, who have been loved by God, united to Christ, we are then called to love one another. I read this quote this week and it was really challenging. Thomas Brooks said this, Were your soul fully assured that God had loved you freely and received you graciously and justified you perfectly and pardoned you absolutely and would glorify you everlastingly? If you were convinced of that, you could not but love where God loves and embrace where God embraces and be one with everyone that is one with Jesus. Christ has accomplished this unity and this love that exists in the body of Christ. And what Paul says is, don't mess it up. You don't have to create it. You just have to maintain it. So we, we, we deliver this truth in love for one another because we have been loved by God in Jesus Christ. Truth is the content. Love is the sphere. And then we would say the church is the context where we mature in Christ. Truth is the content. Love is the fear. The church is the context. Think about this for a minute, and we'll try to move a little bit quickly through some of this. What advantage does the church have? What advantage does the church have? Well, for one, biblical counseling in the church is active. It's not passive. So you're living life together. You're seeing one another, and and you're not... uh, I'm not in an office locked away waiting for people just to come to me and say like, hey, I'm ready to pay you now. I'm with the folks and our folks are with each other. We can actually go inside the church. We can actually go looking for those who are in need and need help. Other models are passive. But we as Christ people, we follow Christ when we go after the sheep. So biblical counseling is active. In the church, we have natural opportunities to, to counsel and instruct one another. Think about marriages going on in the church or hospitalizations. These are all opportunities to give counsel. Death, birth, somebody's moving. Somebody has a wayward child. We're just sort of, if we're living life together, then we're in this context together where we have natural opportunity to speak the truth and love into these situations. And oftentimes you'll find that the heart is open to receiving counsel in some of these difficult circumstances, like someone dying or some, somebody being hospitalized or somebody having a rebellious child. What other advantages does the church have? We can speak the truth and love to those who see themselves as strong and would never seek help for themselves. Right? We can speak the truth and love to those who see themselves as strong. Right? We've talked a lot about Hebrews 3. And there is actually no strong man exception clause in Hebrews chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin unless you're really strong. Right? It doesn't say that. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The church has an advantage in that we can help those who could never afford to pay for professional help. Biblical counseling is founded on loving concern, not a fee for a service. Most biblical counselors, there are, there are some, but most biblical counselors are supported by local churches, and those churches give of their paycheck so that, so that a, a, their biblical counselors might do the work of the ministry, even for those who could never afford it. In fact, we won't let them pay us. We have it in our statement, like, you cannot pay us. Give it to the church. If you feel like you got to do something, give an offering. Don't pay me. Don't pay Dave and Teresa. 
What else can happen in a local church? You are helping those you've, you already know. You've seen them in action. You know their strengths. You know their weaknesses. You know best how to approach that person. They know you and you know them. The questions, can I be completely honest with you? That's already been settled. We're church members. Yeah, we can be honest with one another. Will I, the question, will I listen to what you have to say to me? That's been settled. We've covenanted together to listen to one another. Seven, local church counseling is backed up by every other ministry of the church. Right? The church has the advantage that it's the public ministry of the Word is going forth that's being affirmed in the, in the personal ministry of reading the Word and the interpersonal ministry of speaking the truth and love to one another. Lord willing, in a church, they're hearing the same thing in, in sermons and in small groups and in Bible studies and conversations with other believers. We're continually pointing each other to the same truths, the faith that has been passed down to us from the apostles. Number eight, you can pray with and for those you counsel. We come with a commitment and understanding that God is the one that changes people. This is, again, the work of every member of ministry. We've we've learned that we're all counselors and we all need counsel. You know, again, my, my folks may have heard this before, but I heard a pastor say one time, here's how I counsel. What does the Bible say? Or what's your problem? What does the Bible say? Why are we still having this conversation? I thought, man, that pastor must be perfect. Because all he has to do is get information inside his brain, and then he never sins again. Right? Oh, oh, I didn't know I was supposed to not have an affair. Right? That's not the problem. The problem is the deceitfulness of our own heart and we worship things we don't even recognize and we, we, we not only need to speak the truth in love, but we need the truth spoken to us because it's not that simple to say, oh, I got it. I'll, I'll read this verse on anger and I know, I know it's wrong and I'll never do it again. That's not how we function. You know, we need to get sort of out of our minds that and maybe that word counseling can be a bit of a hang-up here. Get out of our minds that it's the professional telling the patient what to do. I tell my counselors all the time, I'm just, I'm just fighting in the trenches with you. I just want to become like Christ, and we're just going to do this together. Because I wrestle with similar heart struggles. Right, we were talking about, at lunch, we were talking about some things that may motivate, you know, some of this gender confusion. And, and, I, and I'm not saying every person that's struggling is, falls into this category. But some of the things, you know, I was, we were listening to this girl that said, like, well, when I identified as transgender, I, I became super popular in school, like, immediately. And I got all this power. I could get my teachers fired if I wanted to. All I had to say is they misgendered me or they oppressed me in some way. And so I said, you know, some of that stuff seems so foreign to us, but guess what? Popularity and power? I want that. Right? We got the same heart, even if it looks different from the outside. So we're fellow strugglers. We're in the trenches together. We're going to God's Word together. We're trying to figure out how to respond to difficult temptations, difficult suffering, difficult sorrows, difficult threats. So this is an incredible task given to the church. This is a a fearful task that's been given to us. But there's hope for us this morning, and it's this. Uh, We have a role to play, but it's not our work. Right? We have a role to play, but it's not our work. Go back to Ephesians 4 if you're still in Psalm 19. Look at the first two words there of verse 16. You're going to have to look at the last two words of verse 15 to get the point. We're growing up what? Into Christ, verse 15, verse 16. From whom? From whom? 
the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when, every, when each part is working properly makes the body grow. From whom is the growth coming? Not from us. It's not from us. It's from Christ. It comes from the head of the church who is Christ. He has equipped His people with everything they need to do this impossible task. And Christ, through His Spirit, energizes the body. He energizes the, the effort of the church as we grow into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He empowers the working of the body as it builds itself up in love. So we don't rely, maybe you're, maybe you're the greatest counselor in the room. We do not rely on our own charisma. We don't rely on some degree on the wall. We don't even rely on our own experience or our own techniques. We rely on Christ who is the one who brings about the change into Christ from whom the body builds itself up. When the, when the parts of the body are functioning properly, equipped by the pastors who are speaking the message of Christ, empowered by the Spirit of Christ, the whole body grows up into Christ by the power of Christ. It's, all, it's, it's not about us. And the Lord will finish what He began in us. He will finish that good work that He began in you. We will one day... We will one day all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. We will one day all attain to mature manhood. And we will one day all attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We will, we will attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And until then, what do we do? We counsel. We speak the truth in love. So biblical counseling then, as we wrap up this, this afternoon, is the private, compassionate, intensive ministry of the Word. Private, compassionate, intensive ministry of the Word. Why biblical counseling? Why discipleship? Why speak the truth and love to one another? Because it's God's good design for the church. And God invites us into this privilege. He invites us into this kind of ministry. It's not that we... It's not that we have to counsel, it's that we get to counsel. And the reality is, we've seen it this week, if, if the church abandons its task, the world's so glad to take it up. It's so glad to take it up. So let's be faithful in the task that God has given us. Speak the truth in love, and thereby we grow up into Christ. Let's pray together, and we'll sing a couple more songs, and then we'll be dismissed. Lord God, this is too much for us. And so we praise you that it's not dependent on us. It's you working through the Spirit to accomplish your task. May each church that's here represented, may we glorify you as we seek to grow up into Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.